Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Well, thank you for listening and hopefully subscribing as well to Vet Gurus at vetgurus.com. It is the weekend in July the 20th and I'm Brendan and I'm here with Mark, 2018, Mark, to the years are flying past as I mention every week and you have had an interesting couple of weeks, Mark, especially you need to tell me about your little trip, your little holiday to Tasmania taking some pictures and now we briefly mentioned it last week but where did you stay i had a blast brendan i am um, i had a genuine blast i went to uh, first of all we went to eagle hawk neck um uh, which is sort of um go from hobart towards uh, port arthur um and we took a boat from there out to the ocean and spotted some seabirds and on that day i had the distinct pleasure of seeing seven different species of albatross um which was awesome a great day and i didn't even get seasick heading out to the continental shelf off tassie um and one of the other birds that i really was wrapped about seeing that day was the cape petrel um which looks like uh it's black and white seabird and um yeah pretty spectacular um then we came back and uh went up to mount field national park in search of pink robins to photograph um and met a few um other wildlife photographers up there um and then came back down to south bruni island where i spent the rest of the the time we're in Tassie, um, staying at uh, the wonderful Inala Nature Reserve, um, wonderful, you know, cottage-style accommodation um, and beautiful locations where we could shoot out and, and see all sorts of birds. What My highlight, though, of the whole week was the um, the uh, uh, wonderful 40-spotted pardalote, uh, which I managed to snap a couple of decent shots of. Um, they're a Tasmanian endemic, maybe only a couple of thousand birds left in the wild. And, um, and I think I got to meet maybe a, well, a few of the remaining population there. Um, I'll mention them later on, Brandon, because they fit into one of our, um, stories, uh, um, one of our news stories I'll be able to, um, to talk about, uh, about the 40 spotted part of it later but all together yes. had an awesome time excellent and so you're fresh and rearing to go although you've been back at work for a few days haven't you well i've just been slaving away mark slaving away seeing the animals trying to save them can't save in fact we've had a couple of interest in um cases this week which actually i'm not going to talk about but unfortunately we ended up euthanizing a couple of long-term patients um dogs and and cats and gee it's that old heartstring pull isn't it mark when you euthanize that cat or that dog that you've been seeing for the last 15 or 20 years and you saw it as a pup and you saw it when you put it to sleep and uh, you have the clients and which end up often being friends don't they um in the consult room they're all in tears and you're trying not to um 
show them you're wiping away a tear or two with it. But, um, you know, we that was sort of the week that I've had, Mark, apart from the a few successes and a few disasters with, with, with um, some cases as well. And I'm going to jump in. I just remembered, Mark, we have a new patron, um, Kelly, and we have our first kangaroo patron. And for those listeners who are new to the Vet Gurus podcast who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, we have a system where you can help support us by becoming a patron where you go to patreon.com slash vetgurus or just go to our vetgurus.com website and you'll see the link there and you can contribute a small amount to help pay our costs, Mark. And we have our first rabbit. No, it's a kangaroo, kangaroo. isn't it? It's a kangaroo patron, which is Kelly, and she's contributing $5 per month to support us. And it's great to have our first kangaroo, Mark, isn't it? It is awesome. And um, and it's a uh, um, – well, we're getting a few of the – and these small amounts, a few people doing these small amounts really makes a difference to um, the, the uh, you know, the costs of – of doing this stuff, they were a bit of a surprise when um, we went through the whole process. So uh, we we appreciate it more than you can realise, dear listener. We really really value it, and in particular, Kelly's um, contribution makes special mention at the moment. And uh, um, we really appreciate people taking the time to drop in there. And uh, and um, what's your turn of phrase, Brendan? Has something to do with bones, doesn't it? Um, throw us a bone. That's it. Throw us a bone and um, give us a dollar or two. Yes. Um, and Kelly sent a lovely email to us. So thanks, Kelly. And she did mention that she may be supplying some questions to us. So fire away, Kelly. Um, we're more than happy to respond to anybody's um, questions, let alone our supporters who actually give us a little bit of money to help pay the costs. So, yeah, fire away, Kelly, and we'll answer your questions as soon as we get them or as soon as we can. Um, news, Mark, let's jump into news because I think tonight, today's, tonight's, th- well, today's, just, tonight's, this morning's, this afternoon's, just, yes, yes. <laughs> I was just going to say, before we leap into the news, don't you have an equipment review to do? I do. Do you want me to give the product review now, Mark? You're in charge I think of it. We normally do. Okay. Do we do it before the news or after the news? Let's jump in and do it now. Yes. Well, it's a it's a partial review, Mark, and this is a product which I had for I think just over a week, week and a half to review. I have um, sent it back to the manufacturer, and you'll see why in a moment. It's not a negative, um, and that is the Clarius Portable ultrasound scanner mark and um, clarius.com it's a canadian company and they produce a um, wireless veterinary transducer ultrasound and the one that they gave me to play around with for a week or so thank you to adam from clarius um, the australian um, representative um, was the c7 mark and that's a three to ten megahertz um, uh, transducer transducer a um it is a, um, I've gone blank, the type of transducer it is. It's a microconvex, I think, yes. Um, so I was playing around with that and I was very impressed with it because the beauty of this particular ultrasound, and I know we did touch on ultrasound last week, Mark, and we both said we weren't very good at doing ultrasounds of animals, is that it is very user-friendly and simple and you can easily 
connected up to an iPad or to a PC or, or a Mac and you view the actual ultrasound on the, on the tablet or on the PC or the Mac and it has an automatic gain control which is, works remarkably well and pinch and zoom just using your fingers on the iPad that I was doing so it was incredibly user friendly and I can see the value of these types of ultrasounds in the fact you're much more likely to just pull them out and, and use them because they are so much fun to use. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed um, using this and it automatically then saves your scan to the cloud um, and you can very easily edit all the um, scans and do your annotations and your measurements. Um, just remarkably easy to use, um, I, I found. So I've sent it back because one, I couldn't afford it at the moment, um, but two, I do want to get a little play with their other ultrasound, which is called the L7. And that one, Mark, is a, I think a four to 13 megahertz one. So a bit of a high frequency one. So it will be useful for us, um, for the smally animals like the exotics, especially, but also the, the cats um, and the small dogs as well. So Brendan, doing, Brendan tell us what, yeah. tell, tell us about a case that you stuck it on. Um, a guinea pig with a pretty weird looking kidney. <laughs> so I, uh, we, I had a, a guinea, very good client who um, has several guinea pigs and this one has ongoing urinary tract issues. And on the last examination that was done by Michelle, one of our other veterinarians, uh, she palpated an abnormal right kidney, I think. Um, so I took that one to ultrasound to have a bit of a play with it. And yeah, it is a weird looking kidney is, is my diagnosis mark on the ultrasound. I looked at the um, um, apparently normal kidney first and guess what? It looked like a what it should in all your textbooks for a veterinary ultrasound of what a kidney should look like and um, it was a normal looking kidney but this other kidney I just could not work it out very abnormal shape um, well the whole whole kidney itself um, um, the pelvis everything was, was abnormal there Mark so so um, yeah um, I haven't sort of gone back and looked at detail with that because I have recommended to the client that we do send them off to a, an ultrasonographer who has um, specialist qualifications to get a, a much better scan of that, that kidney, Mark. But, yeah, it does I just like, found it. It does look like Sorry. I, I went online and uh, when you mentioned and had a look at some of the images that are being generated by these um, transducers, and crikey's they're good, Brendan. They, I, I, um, not that they would help me to make a diagnosis because I would have trouble reading them, but um, they, are, they, they look like beautiful images. Yeah, and I and as I said, I was just incredibly impressed with the with the ease of use of this particular handheld machine. So, yeah, I'd, um, I think it's a very very good product, and I think it's probably the the shape of things to come um, with with ultrasounds in, and that. I expect in 5, 10, 20 years that, that the majority of ultrasounds that are used in, in veterinary practice um, generally, for general practitioners certainly, will be these portable sort of wireless ones because it avoids all the leads and everything that they're very um, user-friendly and the software that's with it's fantastic. Um, sure, they'll always be used for those high-end, you know, $50,000, $100,000 machines, but, but um, you know, I was very impressed with it, Mark. So, so I won't be giving a... A score, unfortunately, Mark, because I want to see what the other 
little transducer um, is like the L7 one, the 4, 4 to 30 megahertz one before I give a score out of 10. So you may be disappointed, Mark, but I, I will reserve I my judgment and my score till next time. I actually thought this would be like one of those two-part things where, um, you know, they stop at the critical moment. Um, I know you begin to your renovation shows, Brendan, and they always uh, just pull the the rug out from under you just before they go to a commercial break. And I thought that we might be doing this in two parts, but I, I've got to say, I'm really keen to, um, to hear part two. I really do want to um, see what that higher frequency probe can do and how you can apply it to um, our exotic patients. I think it will be a really useful thing. Yes, and I do have a couple of ideas for, um, and I will be chatting to um, Adam from Clarius about, um, uh, well, just let's just say ideas about what, what we could do with their, their machines in the exotic pet ultrasound world. And I'll leave it at that, Mark, and let's jump into the news. So, oh, the first news story is me, um, Mark, isn't it? And it is, it's a good news story because you know how I love good news <laughs> stories, Mark, um, as, um, as Melinda, um, keeps badgering me about. So it's another good news story. And this one is, about, I'm trying to look at the name of the dog. It is about Darcy, the French bulldog, Mark, that was, he came, a cropper, he came in, he got into trouble on a plane. And this was in the US where the owner had the the dog in a little carry cage um, inside the cabin and he started turning blue. And I think he was becoming um, a bit... Um, excited and um well i said what's here's a french bulldog so we have been talking about the brachycephalic breeds a little bit haven't we mark so maybe that's part of what was happening here but he started hyperventilating and the lovely staff on this particular flight and i think it was a jet blue airlines and just for interest i have flown jet blue in the states mark and i did find them um a good airline to fly. They are one of the more budget airlines, I think, if I remember correctly. I know some of our US listeners may end up correcting me with this, but um, I quite, um, I was quite impressed with JetBlue when I did fly them. So a couple of the cabin crew um, came over and bought a, a little um, portable oxygen um, container um, down to the seat where the owner was sitting um, and administered some oxygen via the face mask. And um, everybody was happy, including Darcy. And um, it's a quite good news story, Mark. So there you go. So I'm trying to think of a take-home um, one-liner joke for this one, Mark, but <laughs> nothing has come to my mind. It will um, shortly. But, yeah, that's my good news story about Darcy um, who was saved by quick-thinking flight crew um, who saw he was in distress and, and supplied him with some oxygen. I'm so upset with Renault um, and uh, um, was it? No, no, Renault was the the uh, crew member. And Diane. And Diane, yes. yep. Um, like at the end of that article, um, uh Darcy's owners say that they won't fly again until they've got their vets okay. Crockies, why didn't they get their vets okay the first time? The I don't know, Brendan. I just worry about people's decision making process. Yes, that's right. And 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 maybe um, they should be employing vets for some of these international flights, shouldn't no, they? I um, can see a role for us immediately with our oxygen yes, facilities. 
and in, instead of asking, is there a doctor on board? Um, is there a vet on board? And um, we should be flying around the world, Mark, um, for free, um, just in case somebody needs a quick thinking vet um, to help out with um, an animal in distress. So, number two news story, Mark. Oh, it's getting back to birds, um, funnily enough. Funnily enough. Sure. <laughs> um, it is a bird story, and um, and it's a um, it, it's been a bit of a theme over the last couple of years, and there's been a number of articles which talk about I don't know the uh, whole bird brain thing um, that um, that uh, that despite their um, their relatively small brain sizes, um, that uh, uh, birds are uh, there's lots of evidence both for um, our corvids, the ro- ravens and crows. Um, obviously the parrots and cockatoos, uh, but also uh, magpies, macaws, jays, parakeets. Here in Australia, our apostle birds show very complex uh, um, social behaviour which requires um, uh, very, very complex uh, cerebral activity. Um, And it's been a little bit of a bone of contention amongst um, people who study this stuff, um, that the brains of these birds, who, who obviously demonstrate significant um, intelligence, but their brains are not nearly as big as ours. And uh, there's been a wonder about how they do it. Um, how do they, without the same sort of volume of uh, um, cortical power um, to drive these complex behaviours, how do they... Um, develop this intelligence and it appears that uh, recent studies particularly one from the University of Alberta um, looked at a whole series of different species of birds analyzing their brain and um, and identifying the medial spiriform nucleus um, which is a, a connection between the cortex and the cerebellum um, as a key sort of wiring thing that uh, um, that allowed the bird's brain at smaller size to process huge amounts of information and therefore facilitate their intelligence. Interestingly enough, um, uh, the exact same anatomical structure, um, uh, the spheriform nucleus is... Um, is very well developed in primates too, but giving us a demonstration of um, convergent evolution for animals who are uh, animals that um, need that maximum cognitive ability. Um, birds and primates. Uh, this part of the brain has um, developed um, in you know in parallel with intelligence. So um, there is good evidence to say that that whole bird brain thing. Um, that uh, birds are a little bit simple and may not understand everything. Um, that doesn't apply at all, and this is the mechanism by which it occurs, Brendan. Yes, and there is quite an entertaining video that goes with that story, so I encourage all our listeners to jump across to our show notes and have a look at that because we'll have a link to that. It's a it's an article from one of our favourite sites, the Mother Nature Network, as usual, Mark. Um but, yeah, it was um, an interesting article about bird brains and, yeah, that whole um, extra neurons in that in that forebrain and the way they um, are concentrated in that area um, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, um, when you think about some of these complex sort of behaviours that these, um, these birds are, are, are doing or you see them doing, yes. 
So, well, I've got a downer, Mark, um, for the next story. Um, well, it's a potential downer. I think it's a long-term downer, and that is that Faroa mite um, has been detected at um, the Port of Melbourne on a ship from the United States, um, and that was fairly recently, about a month or so ago, um, and the Varroa mite um, is a mite that can devastate bee colonies, and Australia is one of the, the last remaining countries in the world to be free of the the blood-sucking Varroa destructor, and I love the name of that species, um, mite, which has already devastated bee colonies in, in lots of other countries, including New Zealand, the US and Europe. And um, to give you a bit of an idea, Mark, and, I know, and I'm sure you already know this, but our, our listeners, um, the, the destructive potential nature of this, I think um, um, hives in, in, in of, of bees in the United States um, dropped by about 30% when it was found there um, and, and, and um, native bee populations in New Zealand dropped by about 90% um, when it was um, unfortunately introduced or, or, or got into New Zealand. So there has been several outbreaks or, or detections of, of the varroa mite in Australia previously, particular with a with a different species, the um, of varroa mite um, in in Queensland, and um, there are sentinel hives um, that are set up in, especially in northern Australia, to try and um, detect incursions. Mark. Um, but fortunately, they think that they've managed to isolate these two um, or this one hive that was found on this ship that came from Texas, I think, um, in Melbourne. But my pessimistic brain, my bird brain, Mark, um, tends to think that um, it's only a matter of time before it does get a foothold in Australia like it has done in a lot of other countries, Mark. What's your thought? Oh, I think um, you've highlighted the, the obvious problem with um, honey production, one of the things that's really important in Australia. But there's two other, that uh, the fact that um, it is a pathogen of our native bees as well and so um, it would cause devastation amongst the, our native beehives um, and uh, and have a consequent effect uh, you know a consequence against many of our native um, habitats and the key thing too I suppose is um, the productivity of farms that um, both native bees and uh, um, our honey bees are uh, absolutely critical um, in terms of uh, allowing fruit to be food to be um, uh, the seeds of food to be fertilized and fruit to develop and um, those whole industries uh, that are depend on the bees for to fertilize the, the plants are going to be in deep deep trouble if the we have a significant drop in the number of bees so um, I think as you I'm a little bit depressed by it all it's a um, it's a, a, a story that I don't think we've heard the last of. And um, and while I'd be very pleased to be several years down the track and reporting that um, we've been able to keep our borders safe from the varroa mite, I think it's almost inevitable that it's going to be released and uh, it's going to, you know, do a Khaleesi virus on us and sneak into the country and uh, and cause some serious complications. Yes. Um, one f comment in the article that made me chuckle, Mark, is that the officer uh, that was interviewed said 
Cold weather conditions meant the bees were lethargic and pretty unlikely to have flown beyond the ship because we're in the middle of winter here in Melbourne and we had had a bit of a cold snap in the last um, month or so. So um, that's a positive about the Melbourne weather, Mark. There you go, um, <laughs> that it helps hopefully prevent this particular um, incursion of the Varroa mite into Australia. Our last news story, Mark, is about what? Um, it's a well, it's a it's about gardens, Brendan. It's about gardens, and it's about um, uh, um, growing plants. Um, in a sense, in uh, rather than treating all the wild things that might occur about um, farms and gardens as uh, as pests and things to be gotten rid of, um, it's uh, it's an article that talks about how many species um, can be um, of benefit to our gardens and farming um, arrangements. And I know there are, you know, there are things like biodynamic agriculture um, where, um, or permaculture, those sorts of endeavours where um, uh, complex human-constructed ecosystems are made which allow us to raise crops and livestock in a relatively stable, um, complicated ecosystem rather than, um, you know, the, the monocultures, which while um, pretty effective at producing volumes, require huge inputs to, um, to make them happen. And so, um, yeah, there is a, a, you know, a movement afoot to identify the species that might um, the wild species that might come to our gardens and farms and um, and contribute positively to their stability and um, and uh, and make it easier for us to farm and grow things in our um, in our uh, backyards and farms. So the species they ran through in this particular article um, uh, included first of all ants and um, uh, and there's not. A, out in the world I've been I had uh, I developed a little ant colony of my own Brendan I'll have to talk to you about that in more depth at some point but um they are yes. amazing animals and um and uh, just one aspect of having ants around uh, means that um they they you can use far less pesticides they um uh, for the weaver ants for example that um uh, have been studied in uh, cashew farms um, there's been a 49% higher yield in uh, in farms where ants have been cultivated rather than um, pesticides. And uh, those farms on the same ground produced more than 70% higher income just by looking after the ants on the property. So um, uh, that's a, a classic example of how um, these different species might, uh, might help. Um, and the other one I was interested in was um, that it lists, this article lists a whole bunch of, um, of uh, different species, obviously the predatory um, insects and, uh, um, and reptiles and frogs. Uh, but I was really keen to um, have a look at how uh, owls um, as predators of, um, of uh, rodents in particular, um, there's been a couple of stories like, like we, one of the, target species when we're in down in Tasmania trying to get photographs were um, the Tasmanian subspecies of the masked owl, a barn owl-like 
bird um, weighs over a kilo and they consume large numbers of um, small mammals and they make a real dint in the um, rodent population, much to the benefit of um, local farmers. Um, and, um, and I think in your state, Brendan, there's been a couple of reports lately about the, uh, the number of barn owls that have been turning up um, uh, dead in Western Victoria. And, um, and it's largely a result of a boom in the rodent population, um, followed by a boom in the um, uh, barn owl population. And obviously, as those both those populations collapse back to normal levels, um, there's a number of um, uh, birds that uh, turn up dead um, as the number of rodents drop off. But um, but yeah, I, th- I thought this was a good news story, Brendan. Um, I think it's a good thing for us to um, encourage uh, these more complex ecosystems in our gardening and farming, um, and it will improve productivity and um, and uh, make the world a better place. Yes, integrated pest management, Mark, and yes, some of the other statistics on that in that article were were, were quite revealing um, regarding barn owls. That it mentioned potentially a family of barn owls could eat up to three thousand rodents in one four month breeding cycle. So, yes, there um, can impact quite dramatically on those um, pests that we don't want. And, you know, the other classic ones there are listed, as you mentioned, including a couple of the others there, like um, ladybugs, Mark, um, which I think can eat up to several thousand aphids um, during its lifespan. So, yes, beneficial animals and integrated pest management in the backyard. Good things, good to do, good, good Good animals and good stories. That's what we want, Mark. We want happy stories. <laughs> but we have to balance it out with the reality of the sad stories as well, don't we? So let I think we need to talk a little bit about you have a bit of a story about a fox you were going to tell me and you haven't told me the fox story and it will segue quite nicely into our main topic this week, Mark, which is illegal pets or illegal species kept as pets. Well, once again, I'm boring you blind with um, uh, repeated parts of my trip to Tasmania. But while we were in Hobart, um, uh, we did go searching for um, uh, some boo book owls in um, the Waterworks Park Um, one evening and um, while we were there Brendan with our uh, red lights to um, to see what wildlife we could see we saw quite a bit of wildlife um, uh, just in the foothills of Mount Wellington we saw um, lots of paddy melons and lots of uh, Bennett's wallabies um, brush-tailed possums um, and we did find ourselves a boo book there but uh, lots of feral cats um, and um, and at one point near one of the bins, we found a fox. Now, uh, at the time, uh, I was a bit stunned because um, there, there are supposed to be no foxes in Tasmania. Um, but, um, but anyway, we, um, it was late at night and uh, I was buzzed by the, you know, buzzed about seeing the boo book. So the next day we called the, um, to report to the Tasmanian uh, um, uh, Department of Agriculture that we'd spotted this animal and um, and they have a whole division um, 
devoted to exotic pests in Tasmania, and uh, they were right onto it. Great, um, great to communicate with, and um, they took the story quite seriously. Um, they did give me a bit of a third degree, asking what I knew about foxes and was it likely that I'd misidentified the animal. And um, and I had been out hunting foxes just in the few weeks before getting photos of them out on Hexham Swamp, so I felt very confident about the um, hunting them for photos, Brendan. I didn't have any firearms, I'd get you to understand. Um, so I was very confident about the way they move at night and um, what they look like, and uh, I felt very confident about the identification. Um, and um, and they did say that they'd had a couple of um, uh, reasonably, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, reports, reports that they could, trustworthy reports that... Um, that there may have been a fox in that vicinity that has uh, maybe jumped off one of the boats and headed up the halfway up the hill and set up home. Um, so, uh, so it was a, a bit of an exciting thing to be involved in all that stuff. But I, I wanted to emphasise how um, how critical uh, such an incursion into um, Tassie would be to many of the species down there. Um, and, um, and then it highlights back to some of the regulations that, um, that we have uh, both in New South Wales and Victoria for dealing with these species, Brendan. So have you had a client come in with a fox? Ah, okay. No, well, my fox story, and I did mention to you off air, didn't I, that um, I have a bit of a fox yes, story, yes. Uh, which... Let me jump around a little bit here. You did send me a picture of a fox, which I will put up for this particular episode as the as the key photo there. Where was that taken? On Hexham Swamp. Okay. It's a um, very good pic there, Mark. So that was when you were out shooting foxes. Yes, that's right. Um, with, your, with your camera. Um, yeah, my fox story is I've, I've – and, and I presume it's the same fox. I've, I've dri- drive in to work um, last week. Um, a little fox jumped out um, in front of the car just around the corner from my house, probably 100 metres from my house, Mark, um, and then coming back um, on early one day after finishing early on, on at dusk, um, I saw what I presume was probably the same fox or maybe part of the same family um, run across in front of my car again. And I'll tell you what, they looked in pretty damn good nick, um, these these foxes. Um, and I think the main reason is we do have a lot of own um, a lot of people with um, chickens in their backyard <laughs> around where I live, Mark, and a few of them have been going missing lately so i think these are pretty well fed foxes there mark um, so no i didn't have a client come in with a fox but my other fox story is when i first started doing wildlife care or wildlife veterinary care um many many years ago mark very soon after i graduated i did treat a fox that was brought to me by a wildlife carer um and at that stage i did patch up this fox and um helped um, return it back into the wild, um, even though they are a pest species here in Australia, Mark. But um, at that stage, I, I saw this animal, and they are, I must admit, they are pretty 
amazing looking animals uh, the, the foxes um and, and up close and personal they are beautiful looking animals um but i must admit that i did treat this animal and release it back into the wild and um, i think that's the last one i've ever released there i did see a few foxes that were brought into um the zoo um that when um for various re- reasons um often hit by a car that was was still alive and, and we euthanized them all um, yes but it's a good introduction to our main topic i think mark um, and that is the the sale and the um, keeping of illegal pets and it's a bit of a tricky one this because the the laws vary widely don't they mark um to part um not to put a pun in it um throughout the world and and even within states and territories here within australia don't they mark as far as the keeping of particular species as animals so i think what we were going to talk about is some of the aspects of of treating um and seeing unusual pets um that are designated illegal species and also you wanted to talk a little bit more about the foxes and um the fox control um, that happens and um, mandatory reporting um, of and whether that will come in as far as veterinarians go. And as far as I know, Mark, and I'm probably stealing a bit of what you're going to say, um, there is currently no mandatory reporting um, for veterinarians in Australia, which means that if you do see an illegal pet and you do know it is, is an illegal pet um there is no mandatory reporting um for us to then phone up mr policeman or mr um department of conservation or whichever department you deal with and say look i did see an illegal pet and mr jones or mr smith um brought that animal into me um so it does introduce a whole lot of ethical considerations mark as far as do we treat these animals or not if they are brought to us and 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 we because we deal with unusual pets a lot and your clinic does as well i think most of the time we're pretty confident in identifying species which are illegal to keep in our um, um, respective areas um do we treat them or do we not treat them do we report them to the authorities or not or or, or do we turn a blind eye so, Mark, you can answer all of those questions. <laughs> well, it reminds me of a, a, a very interesting thing happened at one of the very early UPAV conferences where um, the, there was the question was posed, what do you do, particularly um, uh, we're a practice that sees lots of reptiles, and so we do get calls about um, uh, some species that uh, that might be well, that are illegal, essentially, um, illegal in New South Wales. And as you pointed out, each state tends to the um, Department of Primary Industries or the Department of Agriculture as the uh, authority that deals with exotic animal threats. And um, and so each state tends to have a little bit of a different um, uh, legal uh, regulatory framework and vets should. Um, this is an opportunity for me to uh, just point out that I am involved in the New South Wales Veterinary Practitioners Board, but each of the practitioners boards around Australia 
Um, their websites have links to the relevant uh, legislation that, um, and that those resources, I, I would encourage all vets to um, get onto their their uh, registration board website and have a look at some of that information that's pertinent to their jurisdiction. But at that UPAV conference, Brendan, there was a, it really shocked me because there was two very clear um, different uh, schools of thought. Um, the first one was that um, you you just treated the animal on a welfare basis. You just, um, you know, if there was a sick animal there, you um, made sure that it was treated. Um, and the other school of thought was that uh, you had a moral, if not um, regulatory, um, imperative to, um, uh, you know, um, make sure that that uh, illegal animal didn't um, didn't cause problems. Now that might be through um, through reporting. It might be that you have to report that particular animal, or it might be through um, you know uh, educating the person that's brought it in that it does present a uh, a biosecurity risk. And not you know that's probably the most important thing, but also it's a um, a risk to them that. Uh, you know, someone finds they've got this animal and um, then either some form of uh, authority, the DPI or National Parks, comes down on them like a ton of bricks and makes their life miserable. Um, and so it's probably a good thing to explain to them that uh, those are the consequences of keeping these animals and um, it might be in their best interest to have them surrendered and uh, and um, make sure that those problems don't occur. Um, it's different between different species too, and that's why doing your research between states and then species is important. For example, we've been dwelling on the foxes, and in New South Wales at least, it's, um, you know, foxes are a declared noxious pest, um, and there is a, you know, a, a specific control program, you alluded to it before, Brendan, where um, uh, baiting and trapping um, uh, observations, uh, particular sorts of uh, fencing, um, these things can be all put in place to help control the foxes. But um, there is a provision in the regulations for uh, people. We have a client who falls under into this category. A small number of people in New South Wales keep foxes in captivity as pets, um, and there is a provision in the legislation for them to obtain a permit to keep those foxes, um, but um, but that permit is uh, only to grandfather in those uh, foxes that have been kept for some time, and um, there is no opportunity for people to acquire new foxes and uh, and get onto that permit system. So um, it is a real you know know your own area thing. You've got to know what's uh, expected of you in your state, and you know we know. That in Queensland, for example, the the uh, concern over um, ferrets and rabbits is uppermost in the mind of the Department of Agriculture people, and there are relatively um, strict consequences uh, with very high penalties for people that flout those um, those rules. So, um, yeah, I think it's a very good thing for people just to be aware of uh, of the. Um, of the actual law as it applies to them. But um, but I think the other thing to say, Brendan, is that um, whenever it comes to uh, 
um, the responsibilities of veterinarians. And I know that in many jurisdictions there will be talk of, um, of asking vets to play a gatekeeper role because they're likely to see some of these animals. It's possible in the future that um, there could be the imposition of mandatory reporting for particular uh, species. Um, uh, I think um, I think that uh, it is really important that um, that uh, vets understand that they learn about these things and that maybe that they uh, get into a discussion with their local Department of Agriculture about what role they can play in it, um, whether it's going to be a mandatory thing that will involve penalties if vets don't do it or whether it's a um, voluntary online thing. Um, but yeah, it's a it's an area fraught with um, legislative complications, Brendan. Yes, so I suppose uh, getting back to the practicalities of it, the question then is what do you do if you're presented with one of these animals, forgetting about what species, whether it's an illegal bird or an illegal reptile, are probably the most common ones that, that we'd see is certainly the illegal reptiles. Um, and per- I'll answer what I do these days. And, and uh, I've gone from, Mark, from not treating any of them to um, where the, 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 cl- the potential client rings on the phone and says, I have a boa constrictor and I, it has an injury and I want it seen um, to please to not even going past that phone conversation and, and my staff would be directed not to um, not to ask them to come in with their pet, to treating the animal completely and, and um, um, sending it home without saying anything to them to, to um, what I tend to do these days. And I must admit it's been a while since I've seen anything illegal um, and I do, having said that, um, disclosure here i do a little bit of work for the department here in victoria where i um, unfortunately do have to euthanize some of the illegally um, caught animals um, from from raids by by customs or police um, that um, they don't want releasing because of the potential for for disease transmission or, or don't want even in quarantine because of the potential for disease transmission um, um is that um, I try to educate the client, Mark, is my key factor with them, these cases, in that I give them a good hard talking to and I, and I spend a, a large percentage of the consultation with them explaining, hey, here's the factors and I think we should go through them, Mark, or you can start going through the factors and the, the reasons why the laws are such um, regarding illegal pets um, in, in our country and certainly the same... Um, factors would apply for other countries for illegal species in in non-native animals in in other countries Um, and and I work through those with the client and I say hey just think of all the amazing animals and if we stick to reptiles for the example that we have in Australia that you can have legally as a pet um, all these amazing animals that um, people herpetologists overseas would, would die for to to be able to keep and you can keep those illegally why don't you do that? Um, and once we point out all the all the difficulties of, of keeping these illegal ones, um, these illegal pets, um, most of them, I, I think, um, do come to the conclusion that, hey, they are doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons and they shouldn't be keeping these animals. And, and if everything goes to the plan that I hope 
happens with that particular animal and client, they will then potentially surrender the animal, um, which will then be ultimately euthanized. So I think it's education um, because what's the point of just just yelling and screaming at the client? Um, my analogy would be the the feline AIDS cat that comes into your client uh, to to the clinic and that tom cat is going out fighting with all the other cats in the neighbourhood and infecting them with feline AIDS um, and it's trying to convince the client that, hey, maybe it's not fair on all the other um, people around your neighbourhood, all their cats are getting infected. Perhaps we should think about not letting your cat out ever again and it has a confined space it can play in outside and that's sort of the analogy I often talk to the um, reptile owner about to try and explain the the aspects of you know maybe they're doing something a little bit selfish um and risky um for for other species well, I, so I, yeah maybe I know for how high i jump every time you give me a heart talking to so um i suspect i suspect you've become <laughs> um uh with the the um wisdom of experience you've become much better at um explaining that to your clients um, and I think it's the same thing for me. I think um, maybe I was a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, um, urgent or insistent or didn't explain things properly when I was younger. But I do find that um, uh, that when we have people who bring in a red-eared slider or um, uh, whatever, they've, they've gotten through the the, the um, question process and we actually have a consult that um, we do find that um, when we explain the the aspects that are bad that um, most people have good intentions and um, and they you know may let their avarice overcome things for a short period of time but when you uh, point out to them the the issues they often almost invariably um, make what I would think is the correct decision and um, you've in you've uh, made some hints as to the the, um, the potential issues, and without a doubt, the most important are the risk of exotic diseases. And um, we know, uh, even um, even as we are, are going through the last few years, we've the huge number of new, particularly for reptiles, the huge number of new viral diseases that um, we're uncovering and identifying. And um, it, there's not a doubt in the world that uh, while many of those reptiles that might not survive here um, in the wild and might not necessarily establish uh, um, populations um, that challenge local species and um, there's not a doubt in the world that they will carry viruses um, that our native species may be naive to and it's not an impossible scenario to imagine a bit of a pandemic that wipes out some of the more sensitive species and similarly amongst the birds, you know, I've talked about the trip I've been on and how maybe 500 pairs of Tasmanian mastows, a couple of thousand um, individual 40-spotted um, uh, pardalotes, those uh, species, the um, swift parrots and the orange-bellied parrots we've talked about before, um, all those species, uh, um, it only takes one new disease on top of all the stresses that they've had um, and that's them gone. So um, I think that's probably the first and most important reason that we don't want any exotic diseases introduced to our wild native populations that could lead um, to uh, extension of some of our threatened species. 
and the red-eared slider is the classic with the competition with the native animals. They're a very aggressive sort of animal, aren't they, in the environment and push out all the, the native um, turtles and other native native animals. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I've, I've had some um, incredibly big red-eared sliders that have been brought to me by the department that have probably been living quite happily for many, many years and, and they end up being, you know, some of them have been a 10 or 20 kilogram animals. They're huge, um, these red-eared sliders that have been coping quite well and unfortunately breeding quite well um, out in our um, rivers and dams as well as when they sometimes find them as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think education's the, the real key to it and I think the difficulty is, and I th- this is probably why the main reason why we're having this, this discussion on the podcast, Mark, is the, the, the possibility of the mandatory reporting um, coming in and I think it's very problematic, um, especially since the possibility of... of general practitioners um, um, not being able to recognise species that are illegal um, and, and yet having the, the, the mandatory reporting requirement, um, despite what the departments um, mentioned that they will provide training, I think it's just another 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 millstone around the vets to, to, to worry about um, and and. And I think a lot of veterinarians and, and, and veterinary technicians, nurses would shy away from potentially reporting it um, if it became mandatory as well because they'd become um, scared, I think. And, 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 and the clients that, that may be bringing these animals in, even though they are legally kept animals, um, will not bring them into or take them into veterinary clinics again because um, they know that the chances of them being... Um, dobbed in or reported is is pretty high and at least at the moment we have a possibility of educating them and, and maybe talking around a few of these clients to the to the stage where they realize that perhaps they're doing the wrong thing and that that they shouldn't be keeping these animals as pets but um i think it's a, a like you mentioned at the start with, with um, comments that were made at um, one of our conferences many years ago, it's, uh, I think you'll, you'll have the full spectrum of people. Um, some, some wanted to come down hard with, no, we should not um, allow it at all and we should be really super tough and others say, no, no, let's treat these animals and, and go soft on the clients. And um, yeah, I think there'll always be debate about it, but um Personally, I don't think the mandatory reporting um, will work. Mark, what's your, what's your thoughts? Well, I was interested to be at um, the AVA conference last year, and um, there was a, this was not the one that we've just been to in, in Brisbane, um, but um, might have been Melbourne. Was it Melbourne last year? Um, in any case, there was a stream. Or yes, I think it was, or the year before. I think it was. Yeah. There was a stream in the. Um, I can't remember which stream it was. Behaviour, I thought it was, and but what they were talking about was the possibility overseas of um, of mandatory reporting for uh, animal cruelty. That um, the nexus between violent men and animals and then subsequent subsequent violence to women or children was so um, so clear that um, that the uh, law enforcement authorities in some parts of the world have uh, begun the process of insisting that vets report um, incidents of animal cruelty um, in order that um, that such 
men in such a position would um, would may well be identified before they did more damage. Um, and there's there is a, as I understand it, a considerable body of evidence uh, to suggest that such mandatory reporting um, actually was counterproductive. That um, that uh, that people would search for ways to not have to report rather than to engage and um, and uh, choose when to report. And I think um, that's probably, I'm much the same as you, I think as soon as you make it a rule that you have to do this, um, that uh, makes it much more problematic. Whereas if you educate and empower the veterinarians and the general public um, and trust the people, uh, and obviously, you know, if it's a really important thing, then don't depend on the vets to be your police officers. Uh, um, pay some, you know, uh, actual people to do the work who uh, um, that you think is important. But um, but I think if you are using the vets as gatekeepers, trusting them to make the decision about the time to report and not to report is a good thing to do. Yes, and I think the other thing that ties in with it as well is which we sort of skipped over mark is the 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 trade in illegal pets um is huge isn't it and and the monetary value of the trade in illegal pets worldwide um and also the dark side to link with other other trades like the drug trade and um bikey gangs and and those types of things and i i well i probably won't tell any of these stories online here but um um i've had some interesting dealings with with some of these people over the years <laughs> and um if i was presented with one of these when i knew they were potentially um not um let's just say potentially an unsavory character um that brought one of these animals to me um i tend to tread a little bit more lightly um, when I'm dealing my dressing down to them, Mark, um, because I greatly value my kneecaps and I've only got two of them and I don't want 20 of them um, because I've, yeah, as I'll tell you a couple of the stories next time (laughs) about some of of the people I've met with these. So, so that's the other difficulty, you know, and, and it's, it's probably magnified a hundred times, isn't it? For, for new graduates and inexperienced veterinarians or veterinary nurses or technicians as well when they're presented with somebody who rings up and, gee, we, we can often pick them a mile away. It might be somebody ringing up and, and, and my reception nurse is trying to book them in for a consultation and they're asking them their name and they'll just say, um, Joe, um, what's your phone number? Oh, I can't remember. Um, what species of snake do you have? Oh, it's a it's a four kilogram one um and we start to get a bit of an inkling that maybe this is a pet that they shouldn't be um keeping um, so yeah so it it, it 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 can be difficult um and i think it gets back to similarly to 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 what happened with that fox that i treated and released um many years ago maybe that um maybe one of the offspring of that fox mark was the fox you saw in tasmania <laughs> and it's and it's all my fault um <laughs> so it's it's difficult isn't it um dealing with these but um yeah it's i will watch with bated breath um what happens with the 
mandatory reporting um, discussion and the outcome with the public consultation that's happening um, with the Veterinary Practitioners Boards of New South Wales, um, which you are intimately involved with, Mark. Look, I can tell you, and, I can tell um, you that um, at least in New South Wales, the um, the department is very uh, collegial and um, and and seeks the the uh, you know the input of the profession. So I'm sure that um, that uh, the right thing will happen in the in the fullness of time. So um, it's it, I certainly don't want people to be worried about. Uh, um, uh, mandatory reporting in the near future at this stage in New South Wales has put that off into the future um, and uh, and the consultation I've got to say from the department has been constructive and excellent Yes and, I, and um, ditto down here Mark I mean the department that I deal with and, and the staff are f- fantastic and um, even with the animals that are brought in for for euthanasia, they're 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 very respectful um, of of those animals, and and they realise that they they are beautiful looking animals. And I won't talk about um, the list of species that that we may see. Um, um, and and it's just a bit of a sad situation, isn't it, with these animals? But we don't want them to become um, established um, in the wild, um, especially with some of those very aggressive ones like the red-eared sliders, which are probably already well established in the wild aren't they um in australia um are there any sort of final thoughts mark about um illegal pets and um treatment or not treatment of them that you want to want to mention before we um say goodbye well, to our listeners the, um, the only people. thing i would say is that um uh, i've used and uh and i you know each of us have to chart our way through these decision making processes as a uh, as we see fit, understanding the rules that we work under. But I think um, I would always counsel all uh, veterinarians to look at things in terms of, um, of animal welfare. I think um, if they manage the things that they do, uh, making sure there's minimal suffering to the animals, and that might mean convincing the clients that uh, things are bad and um, expeditious euthanasia is the correct course of action, um, I think that... Um, uh, uh, that's the, the take-home message that um, consider the welfare of the animal and make sure that outcome is the best one. And I think most other things flow from there, Brendan. You couldn't have said it any better, Mark. As usual, you have a way with words. So we will talk to you all again next week and thank you for listening and visit our website for those show notes and Mark's fantastic fox picture. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.